All right, turning your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. It can be found on page 1015 in the Pew Bible. 1015 in the Pew Bible. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. But when he suffered, he did not threaten. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would turn our hearts to Christ. We ask that you would use this message to enable us to walk in a way that brings you honor and glory, that we would follow Jesus' example. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I watched my brother and sister, sister-in-law graduate yesterday in sunny Fayette, Iowa, and I heard the charge to these college graduates, I sat there reflecting upon what would I charge, what charge would I give them? And as our students prepare to go off to, to college or their careers, and as we celebrate the graduates that are here even today, we might reflect upon what we would say to these high school graduates, specifically as they venture off to, into a new chapter in their life. There's probably a lot that we could say, and I'll have more to say during the, the potluck, so please come be a part of the potluck. I'll have more to say to them then, but I think this is a, a great word. I think this text is a great word for graduates, certainly, but it's also a great word for us when we consider its application to our everyday life. And so what I want to do this morning is, is unpack two truths, two main truths that we see in our text, and then give several practical implications for how we are to live this out before we partake of the Lord's Supper together. So first, and you can see it in your outline, first, as servants of God, be subject to those in authority over you. Be subject to those in authority over you. Notice verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So in this section, Peter is, continues to draw out the specific cases in which the church is to keep their conduct honorable among the unbelievers, which we saw back in, in chapter 2, verse, verse 12, specifically. That was the, the big idea. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We looked at that last week. In the first case, the first application was found in verses 13 through 17. 
in our relationship to human government, that we are to be subject to every human institution. And now this week, we see Peter move to a more specific, a more personal relationship, specifically those within the household. And we'll look at this next week in regard to our relationship in our, in our marriage as it applies to that. We see here that servants are to be subject to their masters. Who are the servants? Who are the servants that Peter's referring to? This word servants in this passage is a reference to household servants or household slaves. They were slaves that served within the home of their master. We don't exactly have an English term that fully describes the, the position that these servants were in. Some commentators have stated that the servant is, this word servant is too positive, but slave is, is too negative, especially in light of our historical context in America. One writer describes these servants as a semi-permanent employee without legal or economic freedom. And even though we don't have a direct parallel in our society, this was the most common employee-employer relationship in the ancient world. That's one reason why I've broadened it, and you see it on your, in your title, right? I've, I've broadened the principle and, and the application to our conduct in our work. Let me just first say a word, though, about these servants or slaves in the ancient world. It was recognized that this wasn't simple employment, they had no legal rights. They were owned and they could be mistreated. People became slaves by being captured in wars. They were or kidnapped or they were born in a, in, a slave, in a slave home, which we see cases of that in the Old Testament. People even sold themselves into slavery because it was the only way that they might be able to provide for their family. Now, some of the household servants were extre lived extremely difficult lives, and, but some of these slaves, they had, they had great jobs. They, they might have served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artists. Okay, so that was their, some of their positions. And I, I want to quickly caution, though, and I give a quick caution in regard to how we see this term household slaves. Okay, so first, don't read into the text our American culture, our American history, in which people were regarded as property. It was connected to race. There was no opportunity for slaves in America to buy back or become free and buy themselves out of it. No opportunity. It's an important word because in, in light of the discussion that we, we have even in our society today, Slavery was not a choice. And this sort of behavior is condemned in Deuteronomy 24-7 and 1 Timothy 1-10. And Peter, here, he is not going to make a case for abolishing the current order and society structures that existed at that time. But what he is going to do is, is explain and instruct the churches on how to live in light of these structures. So the servants, they were to be subject to their masters, to those in authority over them. 
That is, as we, as we talked about last week, but I think it, we need to say it again, okay? Some of us weren't here last week, but also we need to say it again just to be reminded of this. Subjecting oneself or submission doesn't mean obeying authorities in all circumstances without exception. It doesn't mean that. These servants were to place themselves under the authority of their master in a way that displayed their relationship to God with all respect, in all fear. As servants of God, we are to submit to those in authority out of a reverence for God, knowing that He is ultimately the authority in our lives. But did this mean that the household servants were only to subject themselves to good masters? Students, does this mean that we are only required to submit to good bosses, good owners, good professors, good teachers? Verse 18 again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Some of the masters were good and noble and upright. Some were honest and cared for their servants. But others were unjust. They were harsh with their servants. They were corrupt and crooked, and they took advantage of their servants. Perhaps you've experienced this in your own work. For every good boss or manager that you've, that you've had, perhaps you've experienced the difficult side, the mistreatment of a boss or owner or manager. Have you experienced this? You're doing your job. Things are Things don't go the way the manager wants, and he, he blows up, just blows up at you. You get blamed because he had unmet and unreal expectations. Really? You want me to unload a 2,500-piece truck in one hour and then have strength to endure and get everything on the floor before the store opens? Unmet expectations? Unreal expectations. You're going to put me in the middle aisles all by myself, and I have to get all the boxes onto the shelves, all the items onto the shelf, while everyone else is over there doing their thing, because you think I'm fast. I had good bosses. I didn't handle it the best at Target. I didn't handle it the best overnight, perhaps it's because I only had two to three hours a night of sleep. Didn't handle it the best. I had good and gentle and honest bosses. I just sometimes didn't think they were. You've done a good job at work, right? So imagine you've done a good job at work. Come to find out they took the credit for it. Had that happen, right? Or... You've been in a situation or currently in a situation in which your manager or your boss was dishonest with about pay. They're dishonest about working conditions, maybe when you're supposed to work. Or they're dishonest about expectations. 
So the situation that these early Christians were in is that they were experiencing unjust treatment from their masters. And they were, they were call, still called to respond by placing themselves under the authority of their master in light of the fear of the Lord, in a way that showed respect and dignity. They were to be submissive to those over them. Notice verse Y in verses 19 and 20. Here's why. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures suffering while suffering, endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you, for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. One of the reasons that we are to submit to those in authority over us is because it pleases God. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Christians who endure unjust suffering for doing what is good are rewarded by God. That's the idea. There is no credit if you sin and are mistreated and endure. The idea of credit implies a reward for those who endure while doing good. The Apostle Paul, he says something similar, and we, it brings clarity to this passage in Colossians 3. I'll just read Colossians 3.24. So he tells, in a similar context, he tells the servants, he tells these slaves to obey their earthly masters, to work with all their heart as working for the Lord. And then he says this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is, no there is no partiality. God is pleased when we endure unjust suffering, when mindful of God, when we are conscious of God and aware of his presence with us. He will reward us ultimately with final salvation. And the second reason here is that servants are to submit to those in authority, even if they're unjust, even if they're immoral. It's seen in verse 21, the first part of verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. So Peter wants to now broaden the application for all Christians. And he says that we are called to suffer for doing what is good, since Christ suffered for us. Christ endured unjust suffering for us, and as his followers, we are called to endure unjust suffering as well. Which leads me to my second point. What does it look like to endure? What, what example did Jesus give us that displays submission to those in authority? So notice verse 21. This is my second point. Follow the example of Christ, the suffering servant. We see this in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. If I could say one word to the graduates, this would be it. If you claim to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you believe in Jesus Christ, which I pray that you do, and I pray everyone in this room would do, then follow his example. 
follow the example of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. And I've added the phrase, the suffering servant, to this to draw what Peter is doing in our text. In our text here, the, the servants, servants are the model given for all Christians to follow in relation to those in authority over them. Peter has described the, the suffering that these servants are experiencing and the privilege it is to suffer for doing what is good in order to display conduct that brings God glory and leads to the salvation of others. And in this section, Peter lifts up the greatest example of a suffering servant, Jesus Christ. This section is filled with allusions, echoes, quotations from Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, which is known as the suffering servant passage. And we'll look at some of the parallels as we go. But here's what we are called to do. We are called to imitate We are called to follow the example of Jesus. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Christ and his suffering in his life, culminating in the death on the cross, suffered for us. His suffering served as an example for us that we might follow in his steps. So one of the purposes of Christ's death, in which he died in our place and took the punishment that we deserve so that we might be forgiven of our sins and bring us into a right relationship with God through faith in him, one of the purposes of his death was to give us an example that we might follow in his steps. Leaving us an example was the word used of children tracing the letters of the alphabet. they trace over the letters of the alphabet in order to rightly write the words, the correct letters. I still recall days in our house when our children were first learning to write, and now they're starting to do cursive. Right? They're first learning, they got those dotted lines, and they write over and over and over again. They just follow the lines, follow the dotted line. And it begins to look like the example that's given. And then they they look at my writing, and they say, Dad, what is that? Is that a T or a Y? That's what Johnny says all the time to me. I don't know, Johnny. I'm pretty sure I wrote a T, but... I fear that that happens sometimes when our lives don't reflect the example given to us in Jesus. Christ's suffering served as an example that we would follow in his steps, that we would pattern our life over the dotted line, that we would trace our life over his. And this pattern, this This pattern is the path of suffering which ultimately leads to glory. It is a path of suffering. It is the way of the wilderness, the way of the cross that leads to eternal life. So what example did Jesus give us? Verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself 
to him who judges justly. Peter's picking up on Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant passage. Listen, listen to the parallel. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus faced insults. He faced oppression. He was afflicted. He was reviled. In Matthew 26 and 27, they spit in his face. They struck him. They slapped him. They mocked him. And his response, Matthew 27, 12, but when he is accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer not even to a single charge. And then the writer puts this in. So that the governor was greatly amazed. Despite this extreme suffering that Jesus experienced, he did not sin, he did not deceive, he did not threaten, he did not retaliate. And he was innocent in all of it. But our tendency, at least my tendency, I don't know about yours, I imagine it's, a, it's similar. Our sinful tendency is that when we go through difficulty, when we are mistreated, whether it's at work or wherever it is, by a boss or an owner or a teacher, our tendency is to get even. We want to respond back with threats. And we want to put them in their place. Or we want to post it on social media. But how did Jesus respond? He did not sin. He did not deceive. He did not threaten. But verse 23, positively, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Which means he continually handed the situation over to God. And notice what Peter says about God in verse 23. The one who judges justly. Christ entrusted himself and his entire situation being fully aware of God and his justice. He was conscious of God. He was mindful of God. That God will repay those who do evil and he will punish them for their sin or he will forgive their sin as Jesus took the punishment for them and they turn to him. There is no partiality with God. Christ continually handed over his unjust suffering to God, knowing that God is in control, God always does what is right, and God will ultimately take care of the situation. That's the example to follow. And what's the outcome? What's the result? And specifically here, I want to remind us of the uniqueness of Christ's death. The distinctiveness in his suffering that we see displayed here at the Lord's Supper, which we'll take in a few moments. Verse 24 and 25, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, Peter's drawing us into Isaiah 53. Not only did Christ live a sinless life, but he also bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ's death wasn't for his own sin. He never sinned. But he bore our sins. He took our punishment. He was cursed and cut off for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In verse 11, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Christ died as our substitute. Guilty, vile, helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. His death atoned for our sins, and we received the full forgiveness of sins and a changed life. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Isaiah 53, 6, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The uniqueness of the death of Christ is that we are forgiven of our sins through his suffering. We are spiritually healed and we will be physically healed in the new heavens and new earth. His death as our substitute was for the purpose that we might live to righteousness. Having died to sin, we might do what is right. There's a link between what Christ has done for us on the cross and how we live our lives lives. The result of his death is that we were like sheep. We had turned to our own way. We were straying. We were living for ourselves. We were lost, unprotected, and hopeless. But now we have returned. We have turned to him when we trust in Jesus Christ. We've repented of our sins. We've turned away from our sins, and we have turned to Jesus Christ, and what now follows is a life that should be patterned after his life. Let's follow his example in this. He is our shepherd and overseer of our souls. Christ watches over us. He protects us. He guards us. He leads us, and it's his example that we are to follow. Okay, so now we get to the implications of this. Okay, I've said a lot again. I want to give five, I've got five graduates, right? I want to give five practical implications from this. Okay, five graduates. Why not five, right? Number one, to be subject to those in authority, even if it means suffering unjust treatment, 
whether it's from your boss or manager or anyone for that matter, does not mean that you are required to remain in the condition or situation that you are in. As though you have to be silent and endure slander, ridicule, abuse. The situation regarding Jesus' suffering, for example, wasn't a private, secretive thing that no one knew about. I think that's a good reminder, a good word for us. And so what I would encourage you to do is to leave those situations to tell someone and to get out of there. There are certain things that we need to stand for. However, perhaps there's another implication or not, I'm not sure. So here's your bonus one. We might also need to be reminded that our goal isn't to change society's structures and make heaven here on earth, but display Christ's life, Christ's love in and through us and live a transformed life because when this happens and people turn to Jesus Christ, then the result is society's structures will change. Now again, that's not denying the fact that we need to stand up for certain things. I'm thankful for those who are standing for certain truths even today. Even as Jeremy prayed, praise the Lord. Number two, second implication, number two, imitating Jesus implies making a conscious effort to follow his example. Trace Christ's pattern of life specifically when unjustly treated, and trust the situation to God, which would imply that we refrain from venting or expressing our anger by complaining to coworkers or on social media in order to gain an audience or affirmation. So if your boss unjustly treats you, Don't use it as a platform on social media to to gain sympathy. Don't use it as a platform to gain, gain affirmation. Imitating Jesus also means that we aren't, we're not suppressing our difficulty, right? We're giving it to God. Christ's example reveals that he hands it over to God, which means that we're not denying that there's a real suffering and real mistreatment happening. And it's not this internal man up, be brave, be tough mentality. I just need to be tougher. No. It's looking outside of ourselves to Jesus. It's looking outside of ourselves, giving it to God. Turn the situation over to God. Number three. Implication number three, imitating Jesus by consciously tracing his steps also implies that we don't drift into holiness. We don't drift into Christ's likeness. If we are unwilling to live an obedient, holy life, righteous life, as though it doesn't matter, 
then we've missed one of the purposes for which Christ died. And it's likely, it's possible, we need new hearts. We need to repent. Number four, your willingness to follow Christ's example as you trace the steps of his life, as you follow his pattern, might be what God uses to bring people around you to trust in Jesus. It might lead to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When those around you see that you don't retaliate, you don't slander, you don't threaten, you don't deceive, but you continue entrusting the situation over to God. This might be what God uses to bring people to saving knowledge of Jesus. Wow, they might ask, how can you not slander them? How can you keep working hard? Why aren't you milking the clock? Number five. Number five, final application. Christ's uniqueness in his death reminds us that Jesus isn't just a good example to follow. Like some moral teacher or, or moral person. As though, oh, I need to follow his example. He's not just some good example to follow. His death accomplished something. It accomplished salvation for us, forgiveness of sins, and a changed life. So, here it is. This is probably the most important one. Remind yourself of the gospel. And we are reminded of what God has done for us even as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. When we take of these elements in a few moments, we are acknowledging in a tangible way that Christ's body was given for us. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so before we partake of the meal together, we examine ourselves. Have I really turned to the Lord have I really given my situation to God? Is my life reflecting what Christ has done for me on the cross? In my work, in those in authority over me, am I displaying Christ's example? Or how about in other relationships that you're in? What is my attitude toward those who mistreat me? Just examine yourselves opportunity to repent and confess our sin. And as we conclude, Christ suffering for us, for the ones who mistreated him, led to our salvation. So might our lives, as we follow him, lead to the salvation of others. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there is much that we could say. There is much that we can confess. Our own inability to follow the example of Christ. We're also thankful here this morning that Jesus didn't just leave us a good example. He actually died for our sins and rose again so that we could be right with you. We give you thanks for his death for us. And we celebrate what he has done for us this morning. And I pray that all of us, graduates, 
current students, adults of all ages, that we might now desire to live for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.